It's my pleasure now to give the podium to Ron Susek for this final address on a very, very important topic of surviving the strain of spiritual warfare counseling. Thank you very much, Dan. This uh, <clears throat> article that you've been given, I hope will be as special to you as it was for me in writing it. An article, when you, those of you who have written articles know it's something like painting a picture, and when you send it to a magazine or give it out, it really is from your heart a gift. And I hope that you'll get a loan sometime in the next couple of days. It won't take you long to read it. But I hope that you would read it uh, alone with the Holy Spirit, and I hope that it will just be a very special encouragement to, <clears throat> to those of you who are engaged in intercession, engaged in some of the battles and struggles we've talked about in this week. And uh, I just hope it may bring a special ministry to your heart. My wife is one of those bright-eyed, bubbly, exciting personality kind of people. And I um, heard someone ask her one time, Diane, do you ever wake up grumpy? She said, no way, I let him sleep. <laughs> but she told me a story, and I'm only daring to tell you this story because she told me this story, about a man and a, his wife who landed in Toronto. And uh, the wife was hard of hearing. And the taxi cab driver said, is this your first time to the city? And she said, huh? Huh? What did he say? The husband said, he said, dear, is this our first time to the city? Oh, oh, yes, yes. Cabby said, do you like the city? Huh? Huh? What did he say? He wants to know, dear, do we like the city? Oh, oh, yes, yes, it's a beautiful city. He said, where are you from? What? Huh? What did he say? He wants to know, dear, where we're from. Oh, we're from Newfoundland, cab driver said. Ugliest lady I ever saw came from Newfoundland. Huh? What did he say? He said, dear, he's sure he's met you before. Now, I would only tell that because my wife told me that. I would like to read a statement that I feel that the Lord pressed upon my heart yesterday afternoon as I was spending time alone preparing for today. It's unrelated to the message, so just take this as a preliminary parenthesis. First of all, I want to say that this conference has exceeded my expectations. The quality of people that are here, the insights, the pathos for the work of God, I really have been greatly encouraged. It may be that God will be pleased to mark this event as another one of the key openings of the floodgates that will release the tidal wave of God's Spirit, of what God's Spirit is going to do in the 90s. The biblical and historical truths of spiritual warfare have been rediscovered by a growing number of people over recent decades within the Pentecostal, charismatic, and traditional circles. As I listen to the stories of how people are brought into the truth, it is clear that no circle of Christianity can take the credit or try to be the champion. It is the Holy Spirit 
doing a universal work in order to fulfill the sovereign purposes of God in world history. Often leaders within the church have made history by their efforts to hinder God's efforts and keep heaven as depopulated as possible. We have taken the hammer and chisel of human reasoning to chisel God down to a theology that suits our humanistic designs. We have shut our eyes to the theology of God revealed in the Bible where it exceeded our limitations and have made martyrs of those who dared to allow God to stretch and shape them according to his theology. These modern-day prophets have been the Moses on the mountain laying down their lives for the survival and redemption of those at the foot of the hill shaping golden calves that are acceptable to the world but not to God. We leave here today to return to the platforms of impact God has entrusted to each of us with a serious agenda. We must employ spiritual warfare only, only, only for the deliverance, strengthening, and advance of the body of Christ and in no way to divide the body. God is adamant about the oneness of his son's body and will hold anyone in judgment who fosters anything less. This will require some serious disciplines. One discipline, a humility that esteems each other better than ourselves even where we struggle to understand each other doctrinally. Discipline number two, ears that hear where we need to expand our understanding and hearts that submit when we need to bring an idea back to the limitations of God's word. We must remember that just because a thing works, that doesn't make it right. Any truth pushed one step too far becomes a non-truth and ultimately does damage. Demons who teach theology, that's a scary phrase, isn't it? But they do that. Demons who teach theology are masters at understating truth, misstating truth, or overstating truth. I praise God for the many times at this conference I heard people humbly say, here's something I tried, what do you think about it? Correct me if I'm wrong. I said to Mark last night, one of the healthy features I see at this conference is that we've hit some rubs. And that makes it a worthy conference for us to thrash out some things to protect one another. A third discipline, prayer, that the height and depth, length and width of God's love will so fill the universal church that by the year 2000, people in the kingdom of darkness will be able to clearly distinguish these are the disciples of Christ. History will record us either as the Peter who in fleshly effort to serve Christ sank helplessly in a storm-tossed sea, or the Peter who, in the power of the Holy Spirit and truth, saw nearly 3,000 people converted in one day launching the era of the church. I believe 
that this conference is the sounding of a gun, not the beginning of the process. It's been going on for many, many years. And we have done honor to Ernie Rockstead and his wife, whom I saw when I studied for a period under Ernie Rockstead, saw her enduring suffering equal to Ernie's. And uh, she is to be highly honored. And uh, we have done honor to Victor Matthews, whose address the other night um, was the Francis Schaeffer of this movement. And I was so thankful to him for that. And the disciplines, um, the reports, even though he has been maligned over the years by some, my own board chairman, who has never been in a deliverance session, uh, has run his defense uh, against one critic who began to open his guns on Victor Matthews, and he said, wait a minute. How many hours have you spent studying this subject? He said, well, I'm not really. Do you have any idea how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours Victor Matthew has spent? He said, when you've spent those hundreds of hours, maybe you'll have a place to talk. We have honored properly Dr. Mark Bubeck, whom God has used in my life, not only in training, but as a real, genuine, personal friend who has stood with me in prayer through some real battles. Dr. Dan Rumberger, who has proven an, an incredible skill this week as a moderator, and I have commended his genius in that, because what he did, he acted as a moderator many times with answers in his own mind superior to some that might have been given, and he didn't give them. This man is highly gifted as a psychologist, entering into spiritual warfare. And I said to him about a year ago when I was preaching here for Mark, Dan, if you stay with it and stay clean and stay on track, you could be among those spearhead people who are cutting a new swath for many up-and-coming psychiatrists and psychologists to walk. Uh, and, and I commend him for that, and I want to encourage him. And Jim Logan, for the obvious ministry that God is opening to him. Dr. Ed Murphy, who has been nothing but a pleasant surprise to me. Mark has been telling me about him, and you've got to read his books, you've got to hear his tapes, and... The other night he, be, you know, the only thing, Ed, you really ought to come out of your shell. <laughs> kind of tears your arm right out of its socket when he says hi, and what a pleasant surprise that God has taken a man so far. Dr. Tim Warner, I preached at his college when he was the president of Fort Wayne, and I'm not sure if you were into these things then or not. I didn't think so, because you were about as dumb as me in those, no, I'm kidding, I mean, in this area. Boy, that was that old. That's what happens when you add that. You get in trouble fast. But uh, to find each other now, having been working in these areas, is quite an experience. And I sense the work that God is doing in and through him. And then Dr. Fred Dickerson, whom my wife asked me on the phone this morning, be sure to give Fred a special hello, and uh, who has such a, a wide range of talent. 
warm personality, such a sense of humor, such a commitment to knowledge and disciplines of God's word. Let me restate my appreciation and my honor to you, others that served on the panel, those of you who stood to ask questions or make a short statement from the floor. Please know, everyone from Victor Matthews to anyone else here, quickly sensed in one sentence you may have made, you're there. You should be here preaching. We know that. Thank you for humbly coming and being part of this event. I want to commend you and encourage you. And I want to say to you that I have been in a great deal of fear and trembling over the last 24 hours for a very simple reason. I really have an awesome sense of what it means for you to be going back across the continent. I believe with a sharpened agenda, aware that you're going to be going back to the battlefield where it isn't fun. And I have just been pleading with God. In fact, I pled with him through the night to about 3.30 this morning to please somehow get me so out of the way that his Holy Spirit may breathe out a very special encouragement and healing and ministry to you as you leave today and tomorrow to return to the battlefront. So as we pray, please pray with me. And ask the Holy Spirit to personally take one word that I'm going to say, or a sentence, or a concept, and as only he can do, reach beneath all of your conscious thinking and meet needs that he knows are in you that you may not even be aware of right now. Now let's invite him to do that. Heavenly Father, I pray in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ that in the next few moments, the real speaker who has been speaking throughout this entire week will bring answers where there are questions, healing where there is hurt, hope where there is discouragement, conviction where there is sin, Correction where we have gone beyond your word and rebuke where we have not expanded to your word and equip in a fresh way your men and your women to fan across this continent bearing the fullness of truth and the fullness of power and to endure the battle unto victory. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In flying here from Southern California, where my wife and I were vacationing over the past week, we landed in Denver and then left Denver for Lincoln and then Sioux City. And at 18,000 feet, we hit wind shears. And all of a sudden, that plane began to rise and fall with violent jerks. And uh, <clears throat> I put my headphones on and turned to Channel 9 to hear what the pilot was saying. And uh, he was saying, we are encountering light wind shears. 
I was in the last seat by the window of the last row on that plane, and that's where it is most violent, and I wanted to yell, Hey, buddy, light wind shares nothing. Scream May Day. We're heading to Sioux City where they bring them down in a ball of flames. But as I flew along praying, I said, Lord, is this happening for me to get ready for this conference? And all of a sudden, a thought hit me. This plane does not determine what the ride will be like. The sovereignly directed wind currents do. The only thing that man can do is try to build that that aircraft with a strength to endure whatever the winds may do. That's exactly what you face, whether you are working in evangelism, in revival, in pastoring, or dealing with all the intricate levels we've been talking about this week. You do not determine the storm. God created Lucifer. God created every authority and power, and he created every battle that we are dealing with. It is God's sovereign wind shears that he is allowing for his purposes. But, while you cannot determine what the wind will be like, you don't know what your next storm will be, you don't know who God is sending your way. If we thought we wrestled some tough issues in the last few days, wait till you get home and God has another one ready for you that may go beyond anything you have ever seen or heard discussed here at this conference. We don't determine the storm, but we do have upon us a command to get ourselves strong enough to endure every storm. I don't know the percentages of this, but I'm going to guess that probably only 5% or less of airplane crashes are caused by storms or the weather in any way. I would guess that at least 95% or more of all airline crashes are either because of pilot error or structural defect. Now listen carefully. Anytime someone falls spiritually or breaks in the battle, it is never, never, never because Satan was too strong. It is always because either out of ignorance or neglect, we were not fit for the storm. But Everything we need to be fit has been fully supplied through the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, one verse that I want to lift three things out of. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's begin with verse 10 to move towards the verse that we're going to see, which is verse 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in his mighty power. Let that phrase sink, sink, sink into your mind. You want to endure the strain of spiritual warfare. You must get beyond all human talent. You'll have times when you'll have to go beyond all human reasoning. You'll have to go beyond all ability and know the mighty resurrection power of the Lord alone. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, the next client you're to see, the next storm to enter your life, you may be able to stand your ground and, catch this phrase, after you have done everything, stand. The three things that I want you to see. When the evil day comes, after you have done everything, and stand firm. The Bible does not say, if the evil day comes. We have developed in the Christianity that was so presented the other night as coming out of the Enlightenment, a humanistic form of Christianity. We have designed a passive faith mentality. As long as I understand the doctrines of the Bible cerebrally, and I can articulate the Holy Spirit in a three-point outline that alliterates, I have the faith. And we have a swath of Christians that numbers into the millions that have accepted that passive faith mentality, not understanding that our responsibility is to activate every doctrine of the word in faith-believing activity in our lives, and that's why we are watching the church bring, uh, the, the, we are watching Satan invade the church with extraordinary force. We are losing about as many marriages in the church as we are losing in the world. And it's primarily because of this passive faith mentality that has not trained the church to be aware that the scriptures say, when the evil day comes, it's going to come. Evil intelligence schemes are plotted against you regularly. The Lord Jesus Christ is interceding while Satan is interrupting. And this is God's plan. This spiritual war was not Satan's idea. It is God's plan who is bringing all things ultimately to be conformed to the purpose of his will, and he will get that job done. You can rest in that. Christ, now, dealing with when, not if, but when the evil day comes, 
there will be strain and suffering in that. Christ suffered and died to establish the gospel. We must suffer and die, if need be, to advance and apply the gospel. By the way, everything that we said this week is nothing but applying the same basic, simple gospel that I preach in Crusades as an evangelist on deeper levels of human need. You're not doing something new or weird or unique. You are evangelists going down into the layers and layers and layers of human tragedy and applying the same finished work of Christ all the way down into levels that I'll never touch in a normal crusade. You're evangelists. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to affirm this business of suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. Remember when the evil day comes, not if, in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble including some of the unbelievable depths of problems that we've talked about, with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, he died to establish the gospel, we die to advance the gospel. So also, through Christ, our comfort overflows. Acts Chapter 5, please. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. No room for pity parties when your ministry is ridiculed. Second Timothy chapter 1, please. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Second Timothy 1, 8. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Remember that when, as a counterattack for delivering someone, you are plundered in the middle of the night by some attack of the enemy. First Peter Chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And keep these things in mind when perhaps you're a pastor and a segment of your church rises up against you. 
Keep this in perspective. You're part of the flow of history. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I don't think we can accuse God of false advertising, can we? <laughs> I'm afraid we can accuse ourselves sometimes of false advertising in the gospel, but we cannot accuse God of it. Evil days will come again and again and again, the flaming arrows of the enemy do not hit. Now, catch this carefully. The flaming arrows of the enemy do not hit an external shield, but an internal shield of faith. They may not be able to harm us. They may all get quenched eventually, but at the same time, they certainly do burn for a while. But it is that burning that can purge us of the self-life that is useless to God. Hot, flaming, painful arrows is God's plan. He ordained to allow this happen to us. He owes us no explanation for it. We owe him total obedience. What are some of the flaming arrows you face? How about the flaming arrow of a tough marital problem? Could God remove it for you immediately? Yes. Why doesn't he? None of your business. Just keep submitting. Just learn to be a servant to your husband or your wife even when they don't appreciate it. That's exactly what Christ was to you and me when we were his enemies. You know what it's like perhaps to come home from a deliverance session and you're feeling like God's Superman with a ray gun. And you announce to your wife, Honey, I cast out a demon today. And she says, boy, big boy, now see if you can carry out the garbage. May I tell you that God sent your husband or your wife into the orchard of your life with a marvelous sharp pruning hook. Are you praising God and thanking him and worshiping him for the marital problems he has entrusted for in which for you to learn to become like Christ? Or are you only thinking, why don't I have the authority to command this little woman to change, to command this man to change? It's because God may be trying to do deeper things in you and there's no other way to you. Job had marital difficulties. How fun is it to come home from a counseling session and have your wife say, why don't you curse God and die? Abraham had marital difficulties. A wife that led him into a sin that we are suffering to this day. Abigail had a brute of a beast for a husband and Nabal, but would not permit David to kill him. 
She said, David, don't you go to the throne with the blood of this fool on your hands. David had a handful of trouble with Bathsheba after he married her. God sent your mate to be one of the key ways he's going to work with you to keep you in the midst of your ministry of spiritual warfare when you are standing before some awesome power and you have an overwhelming victory or wherever that applies in your pastoral work, counseling work, or whatever it may be, God must remind us again and again, stay prostrate with our focus and our glory and our whole sense of well-being must be only in Christ and Him crucified in His finished work, not in how great the power was in you for a certain situation. That's not an easy focus to keep at times. A second flaming arrow that you may face. The pain of unthankfulness and misrepresentation. You may only find one out of ten who appreciate what you went through to get them free, who perceive a little bit of the suffering you had to go through as an intercessor, the grappling in your soul to reach into what's happening to them and get them free. You may, if you're fortunate, have one out of ten come back and say thanks. Others may go out to destroy your credibility. Like the teenage girl that I had not even hardly mentioned the demonic to her, although she was totally destroying her life and was there by her mother's request, and I gently approached the subject, and she went straight to the high school guidance counselor to tell her, that man over there is telling me I got demons. does great things for your reputation. You may face the flaming arrow after you have stood in the face of the enemy. You have called down fire from the mountain. You have perhaps spoken at conventions and all of a sudden you come under severe depression and doubt. You may find a heavy blanket cast over your heart at times that causes you to feel God left the universe, locked the door behind him and forgot your name. Do you know who experienced that? Quite often, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, whom you read again and again to lift your soul. The Puritans called it the desertions of God. One of the finest books you can read is The Genius of Puritan Theology. Times when God will entrust his choice servants with a seeming overwhelming defeat the hands of the enemy. You may have to face the flaming arrow of self-pity and anger. Why is it that I can bring supernatural help to others and God will not send someone to deliver me from my crisis? I'll fix God. I'll stop helping people. (laughs) Or, why is it I'm doing everything right I'm using the name of Jesus, I'm applying the blood of the Lamb, I'm looking to God in prayer, and this demon in front of me mocks me hour after hour. My friend, as to the why of all of these battles, God owes us no explanation. We owe him unwavering obedience. 
You are called to face evil onslaughts that will leave you exhausted, confused, frustrated, feeling deserted and betrayed by God and man. And may I say that God has primarily called me to the work of revival and evangelism in citywide crusades, and we have a television ministry, but the reason why God brought me into this field in the early 80s was to prepare me, I think above all, to understand what Victor Matthews spoke on to take that to the wider arena of revival and evangelism. I've only learned how to take cities by learning how to work with an individual. And I'm now trying to teach this to pastors. Let's stop playing the game of evangelism. Stick Susek's face on a poster and put a bunch of committees together and take the city. It won't be done. Satan will laugh his head off at us. But let's get a team of pastors in a city who plan to undo Satan and give him an excedrin headache. And let's get a body of Christ prepared. Hundreds of people learning to intercede and confront the enemy and seek God. And then see God the Holy Spirit invade a city, toppling power structures over a city. It's the goal of our ministry. I plead with you for your prayers. But as you and I, and I, I said that to say that while I'm not primarily involved in the one-on-one -on -one ministry as I was uh, over most of the 80s, I have found the same traumas in evangelism and revival that I found working with individuals. The same exhaustion, confusion, frustration, and feelings of being deserted and betrayed. Take your problems to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Abigail, Ruth, Hannah, Samuel's mother. And describe it to them. And rather than getting a tear on their cheek and a pat on the arm saying, you poor dear, you'll hear them say, praise the Lord, right on. You're doing great. Now keep running. Oh, come on. I, I just want a little bit of pity. No, it's exactly where we were. Now keep going. This is a war that does not end, my friend, until the trumpet sounds. And only God has chosen the moment to bring it to an end and bring it all into judgment. And in the process of this war, not if the battle comes, but when the evil day comes, when the assaults, when the problems you are going to get scarred in the process. Just plan on that. That's part of the turf. Some years ago, Senator Brewster was a man who had an ugly, ugly, scarred face. But he was a brilliant, brilliant senator. And he was on the floor of the Senate in a heated debate, and his, he was so overpowering his opponent because of his crystal clear logic that his opponent reduced to suddenly mocking his ugly face. The Senate sat in an awful embarrassed hush. 
But Senator Brewster rose and in his class and dignity simply put his hands on his lapels and calmly said, I don't mind that my brother mocks my ugly face. He said, years ago when my brother and I were just boys wrestling in the family playroom, my brother fell into the fireplace and I grabbed him to pull him out and I fell face forward into the hot coals. He said, I don't mind that I have an ugly face. My brother lives. You will bear wounds and scars for people you work with. Praise the Lord. Rejoice in their deliverance. Amy Carmichael is credited with writing these words. I carry them with me all the time. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers and spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent by the ravening wolves that compass me. I swooned. Hast Thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole, can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? I want to encourage you, wounded soldiers, that a wound is only a temporary discomfort. It's not defeat. And it's the badge of a coming victory when every wound will be replaced by a crown, a place of authority, over cities in the coming kingdom. Secondly, in that verse of Ephesians chapter 6, not if the evil day will come, but when it comes, anticipate the suffering, the struggle, the wounding that will come to you. And please don't fold under it. Secondly, after you have done everything, now that phrase... I hope someday may be the title of a book with chapter after chapter after chapter listing the numerous things the Bible tells you to know and do. So much to do. I am only going to touch a little bit of that in a couple of major areas. What to do is a lifelong study, but just a few things. Number one. Know the key to exercising authority. What is it? Submission. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to chapter 6, verse 9, where it talks about husbands and wives and children and slaves. 
That whole passage begins with the phrase, submit one to another. Now, for years up until the 80s, I thought that Paul just decided to put a parenthesis in the book of Ephesians with a nice little marriage seminar. That's not what it is. He's not telling you how to have a happier marriage. He's telling you what you better do in your marriage and in your relations if you are going to face Satan and beat him. You better be submitted to your wife. Submitted to your husband. Your children, your children to you, and so forth. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. I want you to see that principle. Matthew chapter 8. And verse 5, God unmasks an area where I am not submitted. So why should a demon have to listen to me? I haven't listened to Christ. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great, what's the word? Isn't it interesting that Jesus equates faith with a proper understanding of authority and submission? Learn that one of the basic laws of exercising authority and breaking the works of the enemy is submitting to authority and not as a maverick only saying I'm submitted to God, but submitting to a wife. Submitting, are you ready for this? To unfairness and injustice when it's the will of God to have it in your life. Did not Jesus submit to unfairness and injustice without whispering a word of self-defense? You want to be prepared to stand before Satan and break his power? Submit in those areas where the thought of submitting brings a bit of a rage to your heart. My secretary, my pastor, is here with me this week, Bill Mummert, and his wife is my executive secretary here in the States. And one day, some years ago, she said, Ron, do I have as much authority as Bill? And here is my answer. Knowing how submitted you are to him, yes, you do. Well, they were having a lot of trouble with their son, Ty, at that point, And he was really getting drawn into the world. And so she stayed at work two hours. Bill went off to teach a Bible study. She stayed at work to pray for two hours. I went home. Somewhere in the middle of that time of prayer... She was prepared before God and just took a moment to address Satan. This simple address. Satan, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to get your hands off of my son. Now this is documented. This isn't a story. That night when she got home, her son who knew none of this had a note laying on the dining room table. Mom, Satan fled. I'm changing. What was the basis of her confronting Satan and winning that victory? 
her submission to Christ through her husband. Secondly, first of all, know the key to exercising great authority is great submission. Secondly, make prayer your primal work. Whatever we have in our lives, now you're not going to like this phrase, I didn't like it when I wrote it. Whatever we have in our lives and ministries that was not released from the throne of God through prayer, we stole it and will lose it in the judgment. Think of the ministries today that you see that flourish with even millions of dollars behind them that will burn as hay wooden stubble someday. David mourned, mourned when his prayers went unanswered. Jesus was up before dawn, late into the night, praying. The night before he planned to choose his twelve disciples, he did not say, as every good, well-minded person would say, let me get a good night's sleep so I can have a good breakfast so I can make sharp business decisions. He prayed all night, was physically exhausted, was at his end physically and humanly in order for God to say, Judas, I want Judas around you. Matthew, so forth. Acts is a book that I see with basically three things recycling. Number one, mighty prayer. Number two, and this is equally important to God, mighty oneness. Now, do they agree on every issue? No. Do they have some rubs as strong as some of we, as we've had here? Absolutely. As long as you have intelligent minds, you're going to have differences of views and opinions. But they came through mighty prayer into mighty spiritual oneness, and it's through that that you see the mighty outpourings of the Holy Spirit of God. Until you have people saying they who are turning the world upside down. And I don't think they understood the depth of what they were saying in that. Overthrowing the kingdom of darkness have come here also. Paul said, I keep asking, I keep asking, I keep asking that God will build in you his resurrection power. And if you study Ephesians 1, which we're not going to take the time to do so that we can finish on time, but if you study that passage in Ephesians 1, Paul is in two things to see the church in resurrection power. Persistent prayer and persistent faith. That phrase that this resurrection powers for us who believe is in the ongoing tense. For us who are believing, 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 believing. I keep praying, I keep believing, I keep praying, I keep believing that God will give you his resurrection power. If I may dip into the annals of my pastor's ministry once more, I agreed to work with him to start a church in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, if he would agree to spend the bulk of his prime time in prayer and in the Word, and he agreed to that, and he's done that. And it's a small church, yet only about 100, 120 people, but an unbelievable load of supernatural stories. Here's one that comes out of, I believe, my pastor's prayer life. One Sunday morning, I happened to be there, and he, there was a rough-looking guy sitting in the front row, and he said, Ron, talk to him. So I sat down, and, and uh, he was really rough-shod and awkward, and 
I found out that he had not been in church in his entire lifetime. He thinks he may have been in church as a little kid a couple of times. I said, what's your problem? He said, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in trouble. He was 37 years of age. He said, I need help bad and I need it now. Well, I thought, let's cut right to the heart of it. So I said to him, what is the number one sin you think you need to confess to God? Now, I got ready to write down alcoholism, drugs, adultery, stealing. You know what he said? Hold your seat. This is a shocker. He said, selfishness. I thought, wait a minute. I'm supposed to take five counseling sessions to get you to see that. The Holy Spirit is an incredible counselor who cuts through as we are engaged in persistent believing prayer. Make prayer your primal work if you want to survive the strain. Thirdly, force Satan to fight you on in the heavenly realms. Now, Satan always wants to pull you down on a flesh and blood level, a circumstantial level, an emotional level, a situational level. Turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 3. We were, in our ministry, we've been coming through about a year and a half of consistent battles and struggles in a couple of areas. And... Some weeks ago, that battle became highly personal as for several weeks, I felt like I had to work overtime to get one leg in front of the other to walk. And it just seemed as though Satan was being allowed to bring incredible weight against me. And I started to come down with the flu. And I, I finally, now I come from a rough background, not in my family, but in my personal life. I got involved in gangs and really uh, came from a, a rough background. So my theology may not be stated as sweetly as some of yours. But I get to a point in spiritual warfare where I've had it, buddy. And I was driving home from work this one day, and I decided, all right, I'm tired of this. And so I started my, my uh, monologue. Satan, I don't know where you are, whether you're bothering Gorbachev or Bush, but get here right now. You've bugged me long enough. And I want you to meet me at the throne of God. And right now, you tell him what you have as a right to be doing this. You go first. I was mad. And I drove a few miles silent, waiting on him to give his case. I mean, isn't that the way it happens? Don't we battle on a legal ground in front of God's throne? Of course we do. So you tell him, what did it, what's your right to hold back our finances? You explain it to God and see if you can convince him. Then when I was done, I said, now you stand here and listen. And I laid hold of the finished work of Jesus Christ, my advocate who was standing right beside me as my legal defense attorney in the heavenly realms. And we went before God. And we've been seeing some exciting things breaking loose since that. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. That goes on constantly in your life and ministry. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? This is my man. This is my servant. You're not on your own out there, my friend. 
Jesus who said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. You're his man. You're his woman. He's totally with you. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, just as you stand there many times, feeling so filthy, reminded of some of the sins of the past or whatever you, you have, Satan is able to use. The angel said to those who were standing before him, make him take his filthy clothes off. No, you can't cleanse yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't save and deliver yourself. Take off his filthy clothes. It's an act of God. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. I did it. And I will put rich garments on you. It's an act of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's all the act of the grace of God. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord says, all, Almighty says. If you walk in my ways, now I've made you clean. I took off your filthy clothes. I've made you clean. Keep my requirements. Then you will, look at it. Are we not being raised up as authorities in Christ? Govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among those standing here. And then the last part of verse 8, I am going to bring my servant the branch, the last part of verse 9, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Every single battle you have, whether you are dealing with multiple personalities, whether you're dealing with powers of darkness, no matter what layer of the onion, psychological, all, all that you're dealing with, you're an evangelist bringing the mighty grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the supernatural works of God wrapped up in the finished work of the Son to that level of that life. It's a legal battle. Hold Satan to it. It's a spiritual, biblical battle. Hold Satan to it. And then finally, not if the evil day comes, but when it comes, you're going to suffer some wounds. Endure it. Secondly, having done all, having spent yourself in prayer and battling with Satan before the throne of God. Now, thirdly, it's a command, not a request. Stand firm. Can I say it in my crude way? Don't be a gutless wonder. To say it nicely, don't be faint-hearted. David was old and feeble in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. He is lying in bed with a beautiful girl beside him to keep him warm. He's shivering. His body is so spent from the battles of lifetime, of a lifetime. And it's then that Satan attacks and Adonijah is trying to commit a coup against Solomon. And David said to Bathsheba, as surely as the Lord lives. Now, fix this phrase. Let it ring. Who has delivered me out of every trouble? And he will you as well. I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord. What power and confidence for a shivering old man who cannot keep his body temperature up. David then turned to his son Solomon and said three things to Solomon. They're commands. Be strong. Be a man. 
obey God. Joshua, in chapter 1, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. I'm not asking it of you, I'm telling you, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Chapter seven, Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Cha- verse 9, be strong and courageous. This strength is not rooted in human positive thinking. This courage, this confidence, this boldness is all rooted in God saying, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life because I am with you. I just want you to see that and then we're done. Lest you say, well, that was Joshua. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There it is, the ultimate of ultimate. The ultimate that you have to bring to any life is the finished work of Jesus Christ and the mercy and grace and power of God released through that. But gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all, all, all things? David, the God who has delivered me from all my troubles. Joshua, no one will stand against you. Christian worker in this age of coming perhaps to the end of the age when Satan will raise up in greater fury than ever. All things are available to you. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm trying to affirm to you that you have the same claim on God that Joshua had, that David had. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God... Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ when God in his act and mercy and grace took our filthy clothes off put on us the garments of the righteousness of Christ, declared us, declared us holy and blameless and bestowed upon us the authority of his Son and said, Go in my promises, in my power, and preach and teach the nations to obey what I have commanded you. Is spiritual warfare a strain? Yes, it is. But think of Jesus Christ, who is the forerunner of your faith. What he went through, you, to some degree, will have to go through, except dying on the cross in payment for the sins of the world. Come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane, 
where Jesus Christ said a phrase that we can hardly believe when we first see it. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Was he going to be more spineless than the 50 to 100 million martyrs that have died for his name over the last 2,000 years? No. Was he shrinking from the tearing of his flesh? No. There are three reasons. I'm only going to give you one today that I believe caused him to say, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Satan knew he could not afford to let Jesus get to the cross. He knew the scriptures. I personally believe that Satan called through hell for every power that he has there, called around the planet, and gathered together all of the energy and intelligence and power of spiritual darkness that he has at his command. And in the garden, as Jesus came before the Father, I believe personally, while I cannot proof text it, I believe that Satan, knowing he could not afford Jesus going to the cross, poured upon Jesus every ounce of energy of hell in one instant of time. And all that he could get was sweat breaking through, blood breaking through his pores. And the phrase, if it be possible, let this cup pass. But then the resounding victory. Thy will be done. The cross was almost the after effect of what I think was the real war in the garden. Then, because Jesus obeyed the Father despite the strain and confusion and darkness of that moment, there came perhaps a shout from heaven like this. Jesus, my son, come forth. And all the energy of the Holy Spirit infused the dead body of Christ. And all the demons were powerless as he rose in power and authority. Yes, you'll have your Gethsemane. It never ends there. Endure even though the strain may inflict some wounds and even shed some blood. But always it's followed with the clothing of resurrection power and authority. Let Let's bow together. Somehow as Ron Susek was bringing this uh, closing challenge, the Holy Spirit brought a very familiar text and just kind of burned it into my heart afresh. I can. Would you say that in unison? I can. 
I can do all things. Say it. I can do all things. I can do spiritual warfare. I can do spiritual warfare through Him who strengthens me. Through Him who strengthens me. Dear, precious, wonderful, almighty God, how wonderful to worship Him who is almighty and who's brought the almightiness and wonder of your person and work to us through your Son, who in the wonder of salvation has united us by the power of the Holy Spirit with himself. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We need to go into the battle in that confidence and hope. Seal to our hearts what you've been saying in this conference in a most wonderful way. Encourage every participant. Help us to stand in that mighty truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? We rejoice in that. Teach us to lay hold of it. And when the battle is raging and we are numb with the impact of the war, help us to just stand quietly, confidently in the infinite God who never fails us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.